Welcome to the Law of Profit Podcast, where we share inspiring conversations in the hopes of revolutionizing the legal industry. In our origin story interviews, attorneys from around the country get vulnerable and reveal how their own personal stories have shaped their careers. In our legal marketing discussions, we go deep and share how you can build a lasting brand that reflects your passions and creates a sense of fulfillment and purpose in your life. We also dig into running a law firm and discuss all things business, from operating procedures and trust accounting to growing your revenue and learning how to make the shift from being self-employed into being an entrepreneur. It's time to discover how to take your law practice to the next level. All right, Geraldine Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, Case. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, Geraldine, you are this super successful attorney uh, who's built this incredible workers' compensation, catastrophic personal injury firm, and uh, you've been a lawyer for 27 years. I want to go back to your early influences and kind of who you were and what's motivated you. So you can tell me a little bit about your family and how they've impacted you uh, in your life, how they've driven you to this place. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know, but I'm 100% Chinese. Um, I get oftentimes I'm Filipino or Hawaiian. Um, Both of my parents are Chinese and they were immigrants here to this country and they came here for an education. So ever since I was little and I was, um, I'm first generation here. I was born in Indiana. Go Hoosiers. Um, Uh, So ever since I was little, uh, the emphasis has always been on education. And my parents have always said to me, no one will take away your education, but they can take away your money. So it's better to have education than to have money. And so I've always been very driven um, with getting the most education that I can. And it was pretty funny because as I was growing up, my parents said that I can only either be an attorney or a doctor. And because I faint at the sight of even my own blood, I'm like, well, I guess that makes me an attorney. (laughs) So that's how I started. (laughs) What is your parents, uh, how do they influence you with work ethic? Yeah. Um, My parents came from nothing. Um, My dad's family was very, very wealthy in Uh, Hong Kong and in Vietnam. My grandfather had um, a lot of businesses, but when my dad, who's the oldest son, didn't want to take over my grandfather's businesses, he was shunned from the family. So he, he came to this country with his Rolex watch. At least he was allowed to bring his Rolex watch and his suitcase. And that was it because it was very offensive to my grandfather that as the oldest son, he didn't want to take over the family business. And then for my mom, she came over to the States with a scholarship for education. Her parents were not advocates of education. Um, My grandfather on her side was a diplomat. And so he thought that his kids can kind of step into his shoes. But the only problem was my mom was the oldest and she's a female and that's not looked upon very well. So she was actually sent away to boarding school and forgotten about um, because the next child in line was a son. And so my grandparents on my mom's side sent her away to boarding school as if they never had a daughter. And then 
Yeah. So then the next kid was a son. So my mom always worked hard because she knew that by getting an education at boarding school, it was her way out of the country and away from her family. So I learned from the two of the best. Wow. And so um, when, when you, you hear these stories, did, did it impact how you decided to handle yourself in your legal career? Yeah. You know, I never took anything for granted case and, you know, like watching my parents and how hard they worked and they saved every penny and they never, you know, flaunted any of their money, their profession. Um, they were always very humble and I was taught to be that way. And I never thought I was better than anybody. You know, I always thought that everyone was better than me and I would always just have to work as hard as I could. And what I had was, you know, not anything to be um, showy about, you know, you don't brag about yourself. You just put your head down. You just keep working, you know, and as successful as my parents were throughout their lives, they still are so frugal. They save every penny. They never brag about anything they've done. They only brag about their kids, <laughs> but they've never bragged about, you know, their successes, their riches, um, how far they came, you know, being immigrants in this country. Um, you know, they're, they're just very humble. And I've learned that from my parents. So it sounds like they, they really instilled in you some things that help you build your practice. Do you, are there other empowering or disempowering beliefs that you think that you took on from your parents' stories? Um, yes. So, you know, my philosophy in building my practice and always has been is building relationships. You know, so when my parents came here and they had nothing, okay, they came, they went to a foreign country and I think my mom knew of a former boarding school schoolmate, just one person. My dad knew no one, <clears throat> excuse me. And they built relationships. And that is how I have built my practice. That's my philosophy. It's building relationships. I, I don't have anything, any advertisements out there. You will not see me on the back of a bus. Uh, I'm not on the five freeway. <laughs> and all of the cases, the significant cases that I've had in my entire career have been based on relationships. For instance, one of the cases that I had um, a couple years back was because my girls were at a daycare and I was friends with another mom from daycare. And when something very tragic happened to her family, it she called me because I had built a relationship with her and she trusted me based on that relationship. And I could I will say that with a lot of the cases that I've had, the significant ones, it's all been based on a relationship. Um, and, you know, I value I value everyone that I meet. I'm sincere about that. Um, you and I have been friends for a long time and, you know, it's based on relationships, you know, so that if you refer a case to me, I'm grateful because you did it because you trusted me and it's based on the relationship that we built. 
And so what do you do in your practice to, uh, to build those relationships, looking at one, keeping the, the past relationship strong, and then also getting new relationships to, to open up the referral base? Um, there's so many things I do. Um, and I don't do it because I think consciously, oh, I'm building a relationship. You know, I've, this is, this has now become, you know, just, um, just instilled in me. Um, but one of the things that I have done is, is joined local networks. So local legal networks, um, such as OCTLA, Orange County Trial Lawyers Association. I've been a member since I think 2000 seven, eight, uh, maybe two, even earlier than that. Um, and I eventually got onto the board because I wanted to help other attorneys. I wanted to mentor other attorneys. I wanted to see if there's anything that I could give back because that organization gave back to me so much and then just, you know, worked my way up and then became president. So it is, um, you know, joining those local groups. And then of course, OCBA. And then also volunteering, volunteering, you know, at, at you know, anything, uh, legally related, you know, local, like I was, this is funny. I was the soccer team mom and <laughs> I was soccer team mom for, you know, six years while my girls played soccer. And those relationships have also helped with my practice. Right. And so it's just building on those relationships and joining anything locally relating to law or not and giving all that you can, you know, giving, you know, sponsoring um, with donations, you know, with, with money, donating your time, you know, and you know that it's really hard to do when you own a practice, when you are an attorney, but if you can give back, people see how genuine you are and that you really are humble and that you're trustworthy. Don't you think? Absolutely. And I think that, I think especially with you, I think that there's an authentic, it's authentic, right? You you are not doing those things to get back. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons you do get back, right? You, you, people tell when, when the relationship, when there's an ulterior motive to it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say fake, you know, when, it, yeah. when it's fake, you know, and I have one of those friends, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> she's in real estate and uh, you just go, ah, you know, I know what you're trying to do. I'm not selling my house, you know, just back off. Right. And, um, and so, you know, people can tell, but I don't do it because I think that the daycare friend has the next case. I do it because you know, I care, I care about her kids and I care about our friendship. And when something comes up, you know, I've already built the groundwork for trust. Um, and, and that's really important. You know, with my parents, it was it, coming from their culture and their background, they had a difficult time trusting. Because imagine you come to this country and you don't even have the support of your parents, right? So they had a very difficult time trusting. But it was funny because my brother, I only have one sibling. He's not an attorney, but he's a successful um, uh, businessman. 
he, you know, he and I both are actually very trusting um, because, you know, we saw a little bit of how um, the lack of trust had hurt my parents and we didn't blame them at all. Um, but it, it, it hurt them a little bit in formulating some stronger relationships. And so I think subconsciously, my brother and I went the opposite. And, you know, it's also part of our American culture. You know, we all trust, you know, we trust first until you give me a reason not to trust. And so I think that building on a personal relationship, allowing people to trust you and you trust them has also helped in my practice. Yeah, I, th I think the, the, the concept of giving, even when you don't think you can give more, whether it's, whether it's financially or time-wise, it's incredible how it comes back to you. When you give, you don't realize how much you can give and you get there anyway, and you do it not thinking how it's going to come back to you. But, but so many people, so many lawyers think, well, I'm busy. I'm too busy. I can't go do this. I can't go do this. But it's funny, the time away from the practice yeah. is what sounds like has garnered you so many good cases and helped to build your firm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, and, and the trust carries through with your clients, too. You know, they have to see that you're not fake. And, you know, recently, can I talk about one of my cases on here? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Yeah, no, I know. I love it. That's great. Um, so I represented a lot of victims from the San Bernardino shooting. I don't know if you remember, I think it was back in late 2015, a coworker had gone into a meeting after a break and he just, you know, shot down a lot of his coworkers. Um, so many of them died, many of them survived, and I ended up representing a lot of them. And I started off that relationship by speaking for about three and a half hours, just telling them what their rights were. They were so shattered. They had no idea what to do. They were being told one thing by management and another thing by HR and another thing by the county or risk management. They had no idea. In case I went into that meeting, not with any intention, honestly, of signing anybody up. I wanted them to know. And I told them that. I said, I didn't even bring anything with me. I was asked by one of your colleagues, what is it that I'm supposed to do right now? And I figured that you all needed to know. And so it was a room full of about 20 people. And they took notes. And I told them what the process was. And, you know, after speaking for about two hours, I didn't even realize we were going on for that long. And I said, you know, we're at two hours. I don't want to take up your time. You know, uh, I can keep going. And they wanted me to go. But I went there not because I wanted to get their cases. I went there because I felt so bad for them, for something that so that tragically happened to them when they were at a meeting. And I wanted to make sure that they were all empowered with information so that they can advocate for themselves in the event that they don't want anybody to represent them. And that's how I approach a lot of the calls that come in, even if I can't help you, 
I'm going to try and empower you with a little bit of information or knowledge, right? Not giving free advice, but, you know, kind of just informing them. This is, this is what happens. This is what you, you should do. Go find a better doctor, right? Don't stick with this guy. You know, you're telling me that he's not doing anything for you. Well, go find a better doctor, you know, and, and it's just um, giving people information without that alternate ulterior motive, like you were talking about of, you know, oh, I'm going to try and hook this guy. So, you know, I can have this case. So I ended up representing many of those victims. Um, and the feedback that I got after those cases were settled was that they trusted me, um, that I actually fought for them and not just fought to settle their case. Um, I flew up with two of them to Sacramento so that they could testify um, at, a sen- at a Senate hearing on changing the laws regarding workers' comp. And I didn't have to go because they were invited by, um, I think it was Eloise Reyes and Senator Connie Leva. And I said, no, you know, they had asked if I was going. I said, would you like me to go with you? And they said, please. And so I flew up there. I didn't speak, but I just wanted to be there with them, you know, for moral support. So it's things like that, like maybe going that extra step, you know, showing your clients that you care. And it's not just because at the end of the case, there's a there's a check on your desk, you know, but it's those things that allow me not to ever advertise and that I get all of my cases through word of mouth, through referrals, through all the relationships that I've built. Yeah. And, and it's that saying, right, that, that you you get what you give. And it is so true in our profession that uh, you get what you give, whether it's to the community or to the clients or the random people who call your office. I think the a word that you use that, that we use a lot is empowerment. You know, we try to, we pride ourselves on not being the just trust me firm, right? Sign the retainer. We'll take care of it. We'll call you when we need to, when your depot needs to get taken and when the case settles. Okay. Like that, that's, that's not, we run it as we're going to give you information. And even at the beginning, like you said, that people, I think feel lost. They're adrift at sea and they just need some information to, to kind of Right. get grounded yeah. to mix metaphors, but, but to get grounded, you know, and, and it means everything to them. And, and whether they sign up or not, there's something about putting that out in the universe. The stuff comes back, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's funny because there was one client, one caller, um, and I couldn't help him. And I gave him, you know, all the information that I could. And I said, look, you know, this is not something that I can help you with, but, you know, let me direct you to this, this resource and this website. And, you know, and without prompting, he found Avo, which is the attorney rating site. And he gave me, you know, five stars and wrote all about me. And I was like, wow, thank you so much, you know, without me even asking him. So, um, to me, that spoke volumes because he had to he had to search that out. I didn't tell him to do that. So whatever it was that I had said to him or however it was that I helped him had such an impact that um, even though I couldn't take his case, he got on to Abo 
and gave me, you know, a five-star rating and wrote up a bunch of stuff about me. Hey, but that doesn't mean that I don't have the bad ratings, you know, you get. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that, that, those are absolutely unavoidable. So frustrating. Oh my gosh. We, we, we had one and, and it, we tried to dialogue with the person like to explain what was happening and, you know, just. And then they feel like they can just slam you. And, you know, I had to do the 24 hour rule. You know, you know what that is, right? You don't write anything for 24 hours because you're like. <laughs> yes, yes. So, well, to, uh, Geraldine, I, I loved your empowering beliefs that you got from your parents. Do you, do you have anything? Do you have some disempowering beliefs, some things that you've had to overcome or things that you struggle with that kind of anchor you down? in your practice? So what do I do? And then I'll tell you, I'll, I'll share, because somebody told me the other day, they're like, you ask all these questions, but I, I want to hear about yours. So let, I'll share mine and maybe give you okay. give you some, some thoughts. So one of mine was, I kind of grew up with this idea that attorneys that make money is bad are bad, right? That it's like, there's, there's an equivalent of, you know, like money equals bad. Somehow you're not doing something right if you're making money. And I think that it's been difficult. That's a disempowering belief that I had that, that somehow tying those things together. Mm -hmm. And I think in trying to release that, that has helped me to be more comfortable in pushing my practice forward, growing my practice and just how I handle certain things, in my practice. And it's actually helped me better serve clients because I'm not tied down by that belief. I have, so I have the greatest story for you about that. Um, being a minority female. So, yes. Um, very, very interesting stories. Um, so, remember, my mom was the oldest in her family. So, you know, her family tried to write her off. Um, any of my mom's children would also be written off. So, that would be me and my brother. And I had a, a relationship with my grandparents, but I would say it's more of an acquaintance, right? Um, because I was female, I'm the oldest of my family. And it was always because I was female. And so my mom was written off because she was female. So I've always had to fight that. And then interestingly, when I became an attorney, it no longer mattered that I was female or the daughter of their oldest daughter, who's a female, um, I was suddenly, oh, my granddaughter is an attorney. She's gonna sue you. So my grandmother would walk around, you know, she lived locally and she would go to church and anytime someone would be mean to her, she goes, my granddaughter's gonna sue you. She's an attorney. So, um, but I have always, um, it has always been difficult as a female as a, a Chinese female in this profession. And it hasn't been until recently that um, I think women have had a little bit more equality in this profession. Um, I was treated as the secretary. I was treated as the court reporter. Um, I wrote an article when I was president in 2018 about the hashtag me too movement and i wrote about incidences that have happened to me throughout the years of being an attorney a professional 
and I was grabbed. I have been propositioned. Um, and I, and you know what case I played along with it. I actually went along with it because that's how I felt I needed to, what I needed to do to be successful in this profession. When I wrote the article, Yeah, you got me going over here, Geraldine. Ah. Yeah, it takes as much time as you need. So, you're going to have to give me a second. Yeah, yeah. So I had my husband, I had my husband read my article because he had to edit my article and he got teary eyed and he said, I'm so sorry. You've had to endure what you've endured to become as successful as you are. And then I realized, wow, how many other women have had to do that? to be where they are. And, you know, it's, it's not something where, you know, I'm going to sue anybody for sexual harassment. Um, it was just something that I accepted. And it was, you know, at first it was just a, a, a discrimination. You know, I, I would say a, a slight discrimination issue being female and being a minority. Um, but then it became a sexual, like a sexism issue with, you know, being treated as a piece of meat. It was actually very interesting. And I'm telling you, judges and attorneys, um, you know, I'm not going to name names, you know, during professional events were, you know, via, like crossing that line. And when I wrote that article, the responses I got were not from, not so much from women. You know, there were a couple of women that said, thank you. Thank you for finally speaking up for all of us. But there were, the, the majority of the responses were from men. Men who were absolutely embarrassed that other men were doing this. And, you know, and so... I've, I've lived that struggle, you know, so here's, here's another little story. I, I was probably practicing about eight or nine years and I got a call from an auntie, right? We call all the, you know, friends of my parents who are in their generation, auntie or uncle, right? So I called, uh, so auntie called me two o'clock in the morning case. And she's crying and she's telling me that her 16-year-old kid just got thrown in jail. And, you know, can you please go find out what's going on? Can you go visit him? So I said, okay, no problem, Auntie. You know, I can't go now. You know, there's nothing I can do. I'll go in the morning. So I head down to, um, to Juvie the next morning. 
I meet with the kid, you know, tell the auntie everything that's going on. I follow up, I answer, you know, I, I answer, um, I come in to represent him. And right before the hearing that would determine whether he's tried as an adult because he was involved in a drive-by shooting, I was substituted out by auntie for a white, older male attorney. So I was good enough for auntie to be woken up at two in the morning to drive my booty down to, you know, juvie five different times because, you know, auntie had all sorts of things, you know, that she wants. Can you please go tell Benny? Yep. Can you t please go tell him, you know, that this and this and this, can you please go, you know, find out about this? Can you please go and see him? He's so lonely. So I was good enough. Okay. To go and appease the child, her, her child, but I wasn't good enough to represent her kid in a legal proceeding. Okay. So I was good enough to just come in, you know, answer that he's got an attorney, you know, but not good enough to go forward. And that's by my own culture, my own race, my own culture. So I, you know, that was when I was, uh, you know, an eight or a 10 year attorney. But guess what, Case? I just sucked it up, Buttercup. You suck it up. You know, what can you do? Well, I, I think that's, I mean, with all these situations that you've had to deal with, and I think it's something as a white male, I don't appreciate, right? I can never appreciate it. Obviously, I never appreciated the way that you have had to, to endure this. But I mean, I, I, I can't even get a frame of reference. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't understand what that, yeah, those feelings. Are like. And that's why, you know, when my husband, who is a white male attorney, um, when he read that article and he got teary eyed, he goes, I'm so sorry. I never even knew because you know what? I never told him. I never told him why. Because one, I don't want him to go like, you know, protective husband on me, that if I'm to go to any of these, you know, events with him, black tie events, you know, he's going to confront a judge or confront another colleague. And two, because I accepted it as like something that I needed to just accept in order to continue being successful in, in my profession and building my practice. Okay, I just accepted it. I'm like, okay, what am I gonna do? So let me ask you about that. Okay, can I ask, like, do you think that that approach? I understand that that I'm sure a lot of people, and this is just helping me with my understanding, because like I said, I've I just have no, I can't ever fully appreciate it. But how do you feel about having taken that tact with it? I mean, one, I'm sure you felt like you had to. But in hindsight and where things are now, do you think you could handle it different now? Do you think it was the right way to handle it then? Like, can you, can you tell me about that? I think if, it, if everything happened in today's world, I would have done things differently. Okay. I think that our society has come so far with recognizing um, the equality of women, the equality of minorities there are more minorities in our legal profession. There are now more women in our legal profession. But mind you, you know, I'm an old bat. I've been doing this for 20, 27 years. So, you know, when you're a new attorney, 
you know, and you walk into a firm and you have to call all the partners, Mr. So-and-so, like as a post bar clerk, I was working in San Diego and all the partners were Mr. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so. And I could not go into any of their offices or talk to them. You know, there was a certain rank um, and I was low man on the totem pole and, you know, you couldn't speak out. Who are you going to talk to? Okay. Right. Who are you going to talk to? Was I going to complain to the one, one female partner of the firm that had at least 30 or 40 attorneys at that firm? One female partner did not have kids. She was on her way to be a judge. You think she's going to make stink about any, you know, oh, Geraldine feels like she's being, you know, discriminated against. No. But nowadays, I think you can. And if all of this were to happen now, I think I would have spoken up. Like, did you just try to grab my butt? You know, I <laughs> maybe, you know, I think I would have um, more courage to speak out. But I'm also then speaking out as a 27-year attorney, right? If I was a first-year attorney and some of the things happened to me as a first-year attorney, I'm not sure I would say anything either. I, oh, I can't. I can't imagine ha even having to make that choice. It is such an unfair choice, and and I, I, as a as a white male, it's just they. You know, they, it's white privilege, right? Like it's the it's the privilege of not ever having to even think about being in that position, lacking the power. Um, you know, I just. It's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, let me put it to you in perspective. Orange County Trial Lawyers Association has been around for almost 60 years, six zero. This, I was the fifth female president. Okay, fifth. This year we have our sixth female president in our 58 years of existence. So, you know, you tell me, I mean, is can can we really speak out? Can we really speak out yet as as you know women in this profession? I think there's a better chance of being heard if we do speak out. But um, are we there yet? I don't know. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. And I get the feeling that that we're we're still in this place of people might listen, but but there's. They just don't even try to understand, right? It, it's almost like we're still in that window that hopefully we get through. Of you're allowed to speak up, and you're and it's it's you're less vulnerable than you were before, but it's still sort of like a okay, we heard you. Now moving on, right? Like moving on. Did you get that feeling? Absolutely, absolutely. So we tried to implement some policies through. OCTLA as to how we would handle, you know, somebody reporting, you know, an alleged harassment issue. And it really didn't go anywhere. It was just kind of like, well, let's wait and see if something happens. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that we're proactive on it. It is just a, well, let's see if it happens. And then maybe we'll see what we need to do about it when it happens. You know, 
I mean, and certainly I, you know, I am so appreciative of the hashtag me too movement and, you know, how a lot of um, men were called to the carpet and exposed because I think it allowed a lot of other actors or perpetrators, not actors as in people who act, but, you know, people who commit this type of harassment on other on, on women, I think it maybe gave them a little bit of pause or hesitation because ever since the hashtag me too movement, I have felt less of that harassment. So, you know, maybe it's the awareness, maybe it's the, Oh crap. I don't want anyone to report me, but I'm telling you my story is not unique case. And, you know, I have spoken to a lot of other professionals, not just attorneys that are female, that are attractive, that, um, you know, are building their business or their, you know, their career. And they've been propositioned. You know, one of my friends had a um, hotel room key passed over to her. Um, and, you know, during a mediation it was just, wow. And that person during a mediation, that person was married. They were out of town mediation and it, it was, you know, Hey, um, if you're not doing later, doing anything later, you know, stop by for drinks, stop by for drinks. Okay. At the hotel lobby or the hotel restaurant. And then it was passing the room key. And that was maybe about six or eight years ago. So we're not talking a long time ago. Wow. What, I mean, awareness is a huge part of it, right? The people feeling free to talk about it is huge. Um, What else do we do? Like what else do we do to, to get better at all this? I think being open about it. Um, when I, so I'll tell you what had happened. Um, we were at a meeting and it was the networking part of the meeting and an attorney came up and gave me a hug and this hand went down to feel what kind of underwear I was wearing. Cause I had a dress on. And so it was like, hi, how are you? That's subtle. That's subtle. As soon as that happened case, I was in such shock. I'm sitting there like, did that just happen? Oh my God. So I went and told a friend and she had not ever told me anything, but I was just so shocked. I needed to talk to somebody. I needed to talk to somebody and I didn't care, you know, like if she would find out who it was, I just said, can I talk to you for a second? And we went off into the ladies room and I said, I think this just happened to me and I'm shaking. And when I had told her, she goes, Oh my God, I've been wanting to talk to somebody about that guy. Right. And then I'm like, Oh my God. But she felt like she couldn't say anything either. So I think it's just being comfortable to 
talk to somebody. And again, this goes back to the trust and trusting that you can talk to that person or somebody or trusting an organization or, you know, an establishment or a firm or a partner that you can talk to that person and that you will not receive any sort of retribution or, you know, um, vindictive type of, you know, termination or, you know, just anything, any sort of negative uh, response to talking about it. Um, But, you know, again, I don't, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do if it happened now. And if I, if I went back six or eight years ago, during that incident where that person had felt up my backside, who would I tell other than my friend? And would I tell somebody to get him in trouble? And who would be, who would he get in trouble with? Right. Right. Part of the circle that I needed to be in, that I needed to be a part of to be successful in my career and my firm in my practice. And so I didn't tell anybody. And even today you ask this question, what would we do today? What would I do today? Would I call them out? Maybe because I think I'm comfortable enough with my practice that I could sustain the wrath of this person, you know, that I don't really need that person, but would he poison my circle? Maybe. I mean, that, that is, I just, I can't imagine. And I mean, it's, it's crazy, Geraldine. I, I've known you for so long and I feel guilty that I've never, I don't think about this enough. I don't, I don't think about things like that. I, I don't know if, if it's that I, I don't know. I, I you see, I, I just don't, I feel terrible. <laughs> I love you for that. But that's something I'm not going to walk around telling people. Right. You know, um, I think that that also bears kind of a scarlet letter. If you're that girl, oh, don't talk to her. Be really careful when you're around her because she'll interpret everything you say or do as harassment. You know, I don't want to be that girl. So I don't talk about it unless it's in the right circle or it's in the right context. Um, I was part of a um, convention where I was a speaker and it was during the year of the hashtag me too movement. And it was a women's conference and we had a panel of women. And when I spoke, I asked, all the attendees, they're all women. I said, please raise your hand if you have been the victim of some sort of sexual harassment in our profession. Case, I think that every hand went up except for two. Every hand went up except for two. And I'm like, look around people. I go, this, this, sorry, I'm not going to cuss. I said, this stuff's real. And what are we going to do about it? So we had an open forum and we really 
all it it all came down to thank you that we all have this space to talk about it but we really didn't feel comfortable talking about it outside of our space i mean i i i i hear you talk about the scarlet letter right i think that scarlet letter i think that hits the nail on the head because it's not just the fear of is that situation going to get handled appropriately there but it, it's the fallout afterwards. And I think that a place I would imagine somebody might go to quickly just to move on from it is, well, look, I, it's it's going to be so much of a headache. It's going to be so, the fallout's not going to be worth addressing what happened in that moment. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so, you know, it's, I think the awareness is really important because I think it has reduced a lot of um, bad actors that, you know, at least they're trying to hold back and resist. Um, it was funny because when I had, you know, reached out to a couple of my uh, female colleagues and other professional women, um, the bad actors in my life were the same bad actors in their life. <laughs> um, so there were a couple of notorious bad actors um, and, uh, you know, they didn't discriminate against, you know, which women they were going to, uh, target. It was just, you know, all women and, um, alcohol was often an excuse. Sorry. I was really drunk at that event, you know, sorry. Um, but I, but awareness is so important case because I think that, um, it put them on notice just kind of uh, indirectly, I put them all on notice. And um, I haven't seen much of it since then. Um, and hopefully that, uh, you know, it, it will be reduced. You know, for the newer attorneys that are coming up and the newer female attorneys that are coming up, hopefully they don't have to go through that. So let me yeah. tell you this. Um, so I had said that, you know, I just kind of, sucked it up and accepted it that, you know, I had to tolerate this to get far in, in this profession. That, that was not an, a, a, an unusual sentiment. There was another female attorney who um, had probably another 10 years um, experience more than I did. And when she had read the article, she just said to me, girl, I don't know why you write that. It's just, it's, it's what we have to do. And then she was almost upset. She was almost upset that I had called out, you know, the actors. Okay. Not by name, but you know what they did. And she goes, dude, it's just part of what we have to have to do. And I said, don't you think it's wrong though? She goes, did it hurt you? Did it hurt you? No. Someone, you know, trying to figure out what kind of panties I was wearing, of course, didn't hurt me, you know. Uh, so to her, it was like, whatever, no harm, no foul. But I think she was conditioned. She's been conditioned. That's the word. For so many years of having been the, the subject of a groping, um, having been um, – 
you know, mistaken for the court reporter or the secretary. Okay. Or, you know, uh, having had, you know, all these advances, you know, made towards, you just get conditioned. You just go, whatever, whatever. It doesn't hurt me. You know, it's like the little kids, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So that's the conditioning. And I think I've had that conditioning, you know, so it's, it's just what I accept. And, you know, has it helped me with my success in my practice and my profession? I'd have to say yes, sucking it up, accepting that this is what happens and moving on. It has helped me with my practice. It has because I didn't drop the bomb on in my circle. It's just a choice that nobody should have to make. It's not a fair choice. And I, I never have to deal with that choice. I never, and nobody should. And I think that hopefully, like you've been saying, the awareness is the beginning. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, I think a lot of this stuff that's happening is it's, it's generational where it, it stops the bad actors from committing the acts now. And then you talked about conditioning. It conditions the next people coming, coming up to not even have that be a, an idea in their head or feeling in their body, right? It just becomes the normal. That is such a great point because, um, my girls would never tolerate this ever. Um, I think, you know, we've raised them, um, to that. Everybody is an equal. Um, they've learned that in school. They have friends that are LGBTQ plus. Like my daughter came home from school. I think she was only 12 or 13. And she said, she goes, mom, you know, Riley, Riley's a girl. And I said, yeah, she goes, oh, mom, she's gender fluid. I had no idea what that meant. Right. I'm like, gender fluid. So like, what does that mean? Today, she's a girl. and Tomorrow, she's a boy. And my daughter looked at me like, duh. Right. But at 13, she was so accepting, like, oh, mom, you know, uh, guess what? It wasn't like judgy when she told me that it was like, Oh my God, did you know Riley dyed her hair blue? It was like that kind of a, <laughs> right. Uh, like, and she goes, mom, did you know, um, Riley's gender fluid? I go, Oh, okay. I don't know what that means. And so they have grown in a, they're in a g- different generation where they have learned to accept differences. They have learned to accept all sorts of races, you know, all sort of, uh, you know, genders. And they've also watched what's going on, you know, in the news and politics. And they've already said, you know, oh, no, we wouldn't tolerate that, you know. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. And this is all part of awareness, like going back to what we were talking about, right, is, you know, Sometimes you need to, you know, be the one that takes the pain and then speak about it so that there is awareness. So no one else has to ever feel that pain. Right. So I'll be the martyr. 
I'll be the martyr. <laughs> but I, I, I think that's so right, though. It's, it's the awareness. While maybe right now it feels inadequate, right? It just, in some way, it's like, like just putting out the awareness isn't like it, it. There isn't a straight line from awareness to fixing the problem, right? Yeah. I, but but it's a step in the right direction that then leads to power. Yeah. Because that like Riley feels powerful enough to be honest about who she yeah. is, or right? And, and I, I think that it's it's what has to be done. It's probably the you know it's what has to be done now so that those changes can happen, and and it takes time. Right. It takes time, unfortunately. Exactly. So hopefully we're going to raise you know a new generation that won't have to tolerate, you know, what my generation as a female and as a minority had to tolerate. You know, my kids are, um, you know, they're halvesies, they're Asians, they're white and Asian. So, you know, hopefully everyone will be accepted and they won't have a difficult time being successful in their career because of their gender and because of their race. Geraldine, you are an amazing human. Uh, I think I really appreciate you though being open and sharing sharing these things because that that is the awareness and that is the must have first step to everything else. But if people aren't brave enough to talk about it, then the awareness doesn't happen. Without the awareness, the change doesn't happen. So I appreciate you sharing this with me because I mean it's also hearing from someone I know well. You know, and realizing that, that, you know, probably know these bad actors yeah. and to think that just to reconceptualize things um, and appreciate and understand, right? It's an understanding. Yeah. I think it's very helpful. And so I appreciate that. Oh, well, I don't know that you were expecting me to get so emotional, but <laughs> sorry. I love no, don't be sorry. I got goosebumps. I mean, I, I just really appreciate it because I think, you know, with all the stuff that's been going on, I think that it, everyone needs a deeper understanding of each other. And so many of us, especially in the legal community, see each other as lawyers and don't understand that we're humans. And all of these things have happened to get us to this point. I think by understanding all of those things that happened, it, it makes us closer and makes hopefully the community stronger. So I, I just can't thank you enough for sharing today, Geraldine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You're welcome. I, I, you know, I don't, like I was saying to you, I just, I don't walk around talking about stuff like that. Right. Because, you know, I don't really want to drop a turd in the punch bowl, as they say. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, it, it, you were talking about building a practice and building a successful practice, but you know, all of these experiences have contributed to building this practice that I have. And, you know, and there are many approaches, you know, there are approaches and I know a lot of colleagues, um, well, some of my colleagues have actually fought back and, you know, that they're then viewed differently. And I not consciously knowing to do this, but I didn't fight back. And, you know, I, I am where I am, but I'm not advocating not speaking out about it. It was just that was the time and that was that was what I chose to do at that time. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's super powerful, Geraldine. It's super powerful. And, um, 
you know, and plus as the, as a dad of a little girl, like, and hearing about your girls, it's, um, I think it's also, like I said, it's an appreciation understanding that, that more guys need, we need to hear this more to appreciate and feel what it must be like and how damaging, uh, it can be to another human to, to conduct yourself like this and allow other people to conduct themselves like this. So just thank, thanks for talking to us about this today. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I think what you're doing is just a a great thing. Um, I love your project. I love how you are educating others, empowering them. I mean, you know, just by disseminating these types of videos out there, you're empowering others by allowing them to learn from, you know, pe- old people like us who've been around for a while. <laughs> well, Geraldine, I really appreciate it. And th- thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.